So if you have your Bible, we invite you to open it again to Revelation chapter 11 as Pastor Phil shares today's teaching. Prophetic passages, this is very common. I'll give you a couple of examples. Turn to John chapter 5. It's very common to condense a large period of time when you're talking about prophecy into a single verse or two. One example is John 5 verse 28 and 29, where Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's the rapture, those that are believers, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, folks, that takes place at least 1,007 years later at the great white throne judgment. So verse 28, or excuse me, first part of verse 29, talks about those who are resurrected to the resurrection of life. That's the rapture of the church. Well, you get the seven-year tribulation period after that and a thousand-year millennial kingdom before you come to the great white throne judgment. That's why I say that the beginning part of verse 29 and the latter part are separated by at least a thousand seven years. And yet they're all kind of squashed together in a single statement. Turn to Isaiah 61. And let's read verses 1 and 2 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, all of that is referring to Christ's first coming. And in fact, when you study how Jesus began his public ministry in Nazareth, remember how he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and they handed him the scroll, the reading for that week. He turned to Isaiah 61. He quoted this, but he didn't quote all of it. He quoted until verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, sat down, and said, Today is the scripture fulfilled in your hearing. When we go back to Isaiah 61, we realize he stopped at a comma. The rest of the verse goes, And the day of vengeance of our God, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The reason he stopped was because the day of vengeance of our God wasn't going to take place until 2,000 years later when the tribulation period came and God's judgment was poured out upon the world. And yet 2,000 years, you know, is separated by a single comma, right? First coming and then the tribulation. So this is quite a common thing when you're talking about prophetic passages, just so you know that. Because people read this and go, wait a minute, now how could this be? You're talking about the resurrection of the dead happening right here and rewards, but that doesn't happen until much later. We don't get it. 
It's because often God just kind of smashes together two or three thousand years of history and just puts it in a single verse to talk about, you know, uh, succinct. All right. Uh, You know, it's very succinct. And we're just giving you a general overview of what's coming. Well, verse 18, once again, he said, And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Now, when it talks about rewards being given here to God's servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, listen to me, we are not talking about the rewards given to Christians or who are also called church saints. We receive our rewards at the time of the rapture. And by this point, the rapture has already happened several years earlier, as we studied in chapter 4, verse 1. That's when I believe the rapture takes place. So we're, we're several years now into the final seven. We might be four, five, six years in by this time, after the rapture has taken place. But we know that when we are raptured, we get our rewards immediately at that point. We know that because in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus is talking about the rapture. And he said, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Now, this is speaking of the rapture of the church, at which time all the saints who have lived and died during the church age. When is the church age? From Pentecost to what? To the rapture. That is called the church age. All the saints that have died during the church age at this point are going to be resurrected, and along with all of us who are still alive on the earth, are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. We are then taken by the Lord to heaven, where we are rewarded, we receive our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and then we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And we are wed to our bridegroom. Now, while all that wonderful stuff's going on in heaven, on the earth, seven years of judgment is taking place, where all those people who refuse to repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they are going to be judged. At the end of the seven years of judgment, Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth with his bride, the church, to take possession of the earth and to establish his millennial kingdom. You can read about all of that in chapter 19 of Revelation. Now, at that time, when Jesus comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom, at that time, many scholars, including Hal Lindsey, who was a prophecy scholar, Many believe at that time all the Old Testament saints and prophets, along with all the tribulation saints that were martyred by the Antichrist and his followers, at that time they will be resurrected, receive their rewards, and enter into Christ's kingdom. And I believe they are the ones in view in verse 18. When John said, or the elder said, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. I believe we're talking about the Old Testament prophets and saints and all the tribulation saints. They are going to be resurrected at that time, receive their rewards, enter into the millennial kingdom. Of course, this will be followed by a thousand years later. Now, yet the whole millennial kingdom, a thousand years later, you're going to have one final and great resurrection. This is the greatest resurrection the scriptures talk about. 
Christ was the first fruits, right? You have the rapture, which is going to bring in a lot more that are going to be resurrected. Right before Jesus establishes his kingdom, all the Old Testament saints and all the tribulation saints, they're resurrected. That's an even greater resurrection. The greatest of all the resurrections the scriptures talk about comes at the end of the thousand years, which is the resurrection of the unbelieving dead. And they're going to all be resurrected and stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, where they're going to be judged and cast into hell, which the Bible calls the lake of fire. And you can read about that in Revelation 20. And again, all this is condensed into a single verse, verse 18. Now, the last part of the verse I just want to point your attention to, where he talks about, you know, how they're going to be rewarded, the serv- your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The elders are praising God because he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And environmentalists have picked up on that and quoted it and said, all you people that are throwing gum wrappers on the ground and, you know, and uh, filling up these SUVs and polluting the, the, the world, you're going to be judged. Yeah. Well, it's not an ecological statement. It's a moral and spiritual statement. You see, the second word for destroy in that verse really means corrupt. The, angel is, uh, the elders are saying that the time has come for God to destroy those who corrupted the earth morally and spiritually. Isn't it interesting that all these radical environmentalists who are fighting to save the condors and the polar bears, I'm not against that. I'm really not. I think we should take care of God's creation. I love nature. I love and I hate when you're walking down some beautiful path in the woods and there's trash laying there. I think it's terrible. I'm not saying we should go out and pollute the world. But you have people that... It's not just about keeping things nice. It's a religion. It's a religion. They refuse to worship the Creator, and so after that, they what? They worship the creation. Whether you're a radical environmentalist or a Wiccan or a New Ager or whoever you are or what you believe that involves goddess, Mother Earth worship, and there's, you'd be shocked at how many groups are out there that worship the Earth. It's just interesting to me is they are fighting so hard to save Mother Earth physically by not polluting it. In the process, many of them are living lives that are completely immoral, completely ungodly. They're polluting the earth morally and spiritually, which is going to cause God to judge the very earth that they worship. Interesting, isn't it? Well, that brings us to verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven... And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Interesting that the chapter opened up with a temple on earth, and now it's closing with the temple of God in heaven. And the focal point is the ark of the covenant, which is seen in the temple in heaven. Now, the ark of the covenant, when God gave to Moses on Sinai the blueprints for the tabernacle, All of it was really just a model of what was the real temple in heaven. And one of the things, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box overlaid with gold. The dimensions were basically two foot three inches wide by two foot three inches high by three foot nine inches long. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things originally. 
There was the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, right? There was a pot of manna, and there was Aaron's rod that had budded in the rebellion against Korah. On top of this wooden box overlaid with gold was a lid called the mercy seat made of pure gold. And on either end of the mercy seat, there was a cherub with its wings outstretched over the mercy seat. It was a model of the throne of God. And of course, on the day of Yom Kippur, as they would sacrifice the animals, and the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, As God looked down, he saw the broken law, but it was tempered with mercy because of the blood sacrifice. Because the soul that sins shall die, but God in his mercy allowed for a substitute, right? Now, when that tabernacle, that uh, Ark of the Covenant was completed, and it did represent the throne of God in the earth, it went into the tabernacle, this portable structure that they would carry with them in the wilderness, When they entered into the promised land, they originally set it up in Shiloh. Eventually, it made its way to Jerusalem when David conquered the city. And at that time, the the tabernacle was put up and the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. Well, you remember the story, uh, I'm digressing a little bit, how the Philistines came one day and attacked Israel and the Jews began to be defeated. And so they thought, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out and kind of bring it into battle as a good luck charm. That was a bad move, all right? And the Philistines captured it, you know, and brought it back to, uh, I forgot where it wound up at first, but, you know, they stuck the thing on on a new cart and dragged it back to one of their cities, Gath, or forgot which one it was. Well, anyways, you know, as soon as it got to the city, God began to strike the city with rats and the Hebrew says emeralds. We're not quite sure what that was. Some believe hemorrhoids. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, something very unpleasant, to say the least, all right? And so this city sent it to a different Philistine city. We don't want it. Same thing happened to that city. They tried to ship it over to another Philistine capital, and the men of the city came out and said, Are you guys nuts? We don't want that thing here. Well, what do we do with it? Well, let's stick it on the cart again and it's, take a couple of, you know, take a couple of milking cows and, and take their calves away. And, uh, and if they go right for the calves, we'll know that it was just a coincidence. But if they make a beeline to Israel, we know that God was in this, and we're going to let the thing go back to the people of Israel. And so that's what happened, and they wound up recovering it. And for a long period of time, it remained in, um, I think it was Kirjath-Jerim, uh, for a long period of time until all the time that Saul was king. He was no man of God. He didn't have a heart of worship. You couldn't really worship God without the Ark of the Covenant. It represented the presence of God, but he wasn't a man of worship, and so it stayed. You know, when David became king, he wanted to bring it to Jerusalem so he could, you know, worship God properly. And you remember the story. In his haste and zeal to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which was a good thing, by the way, and I believe it was the will of God, he didn't follow God's prescribed way of doing it, did he? God had given very specific instructions in the law how this Ark was to be transported. You didn't touch the Ark of God. It represented God's throne on the earth. It represented the presence of God. You don't manhandle God. We don't approach God and manhandle God on our terms. We do. We approach him on his terms, right? And they had, God said, it's only to be moved on special poles that were placed to the rings in the bottom of the Ark of the Covenant, placed on the shoulders of the Kohathites, 
covered. The ark was always covered. It was placed on the shoulders of the Kohathites, a very specific family of the Levites, who were trained from the time they were young boys how to transport the ark. That was all they did. They knew how to do it. David, in his haste, wanting to do a good thing, didn't do it the right way, didn't read the scriptures, didn't find out what God had said. David followed the Philistine example, stuck the thing on a new cart, and had a couple of brothers, uh, Uzzah and Heo, you know, riding oxen, pull this thing. And you remember the story when the thing got to Nacon's threshing floor, it hit a rut, and the cart, you know, the, uh, the cart bounced, and the ark began to look like it was going to topple off into the dirt. And uh, Uzzah reached back to steady the ark. He touched it. God struck him on the spot, killed him. David was so furious because from his vantage point, he thought, here we are trying to do something good for you, Lord. And this is how you repay us. I'm done. Just take it somewhere. I don't even want to see it anymore. And so they took it into the house of Obed-Edom, where it stayed for the next three months. And David just went back to Jerusalem. He, first of all, names the place Perez Uzzah, outburst against Uzzah, you know, as if God was some hothead who just lost it and killed a guy for no reason. He goes back to Jerusalem where he is just, he's feeling very far from God because he feels that God has acted in a way that is unlike David expected God to act. And so David now is afraid of God. He's not drawing close to him in worship. At this point, he's afraid of God. He can't understand why God did this. It seems so out of character that God would do this. And David is just really separated from God. He's just really out of fellowship. He gets word, though, that God has been blessing the house of Obed-Edom. This kind of encourages him to try again, but this time he goes to the Word of God, finds out what God said, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem the right way, and God blesses it, and God blesses the worship of God there in Jerusalem. This is a pretty, you know, incredible piece of furniture, right? After Solomon built the temple... They put the Ark of the Covenant in the new Holy of Holies, where it remained. It was not put into Herod's temple, which is the second, or as the Jews call it, the third temple. It was gone by that time. What happened to it? Tradition says that before the Babylonians came to conquer Judah, Jeremiah the prophet had been warning them this was going to happen, that Jeremiah took it and hid it somewhere for safekeeping. If you go to Jerusalem today, as I have done, gone to the Temple Institute where they are training men for the priesthood and getting things ready for the building of the new temple, the rabbis will tell you, we know where it is. Jeremiah stuck it in one of the hidden passages under the Temple Mount. We know where it is. And when the time comes, we'll bring it out. Do they really know where it is? I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it. Some people say it's down in Ethiopia. Because when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, he gave it to her for safekeeping. She brought it down there. And in fact, if you go down to Ethiopia, there is a religious order down there of priests who are guarding this ark, which many scholars believe is simply a replica of the one that was in Solomon's temple. They say, well, are they they ever going to find the ark? I don't know. Maybe. If they do find it, can you imagine a bigger impetus to rebuild the temple? But you know what? I don't know if they're going to find it. I know this, that by the time we come to the Millennial Kingdom, Jeremiah 3.16 tells us nobody's going to care. 
They're not going to even think about the old ark anymore. Why? Because the true ark is in heaven where the true throne of God is and God's coming to the earth. What do you need a model of the throne of God when you got the actual throne and God himself sitting on it? So nobody's going to care. I think that this would have been a great encouragement to the people of God, though, as John recorded how that at one point heaven opens and we see the people of God see the the Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the fact that, you know, God's presence, you know, I mean, God is is revealing himself. He's he's going to, you know, he's going to keep his word and he's going to come back to the earth to establish his kingdom and so on. And and God knows where the ark is. I mean, the, the, the model was lost, but the true ark is where it's always been. And God's coming back to the earth. You know, God's on the throne. All right. You know, that, that's what really what I get out of that. God's on the throne in, in the midst of all this tribulation and chaos. And all these people who love the Lord, who are dying for their faith, who are tribulation saints. At one point, the heavens part, and you see the temple of God, the ark of God, the throne of God. God is still on the throne in the midst of it all. No matter how bad things get, you know, as some old preacher said, yeah, Friday might be here, but Sunday's a coming. When Jesus died on the cross, it looked like it was all over, right? His disciples couldn't have gotten any lower. Yep, Friday was there, but Sunday's a coming. And judgment's happening. This world's crumbling, but Jesus is coming. And you know what? At this point, John says there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. The stage is now being set for the finale. The final series of events that's going to bring the final and the most horrific judgments of God upon the earth before Jesus comes back and makes it all right. And this world is in bad shape, folks. Not unless we who are called by his name humble ourselves, seek his face, and turn from our wicked and carnal ways. And we cry out to God, and only then will he hear our prayers, forgive our sins, and heal this land. But there is a kingdom coming, a kingdom of true righteousness, and we believe it's coming soon. God is still on the throne. Revelation chapter 12. Now, just to kind of give you an idea where we are here, we have stopped progressing through the book of Revelation chronologically. We're in a parenthetical time here from chapter 10 through 14, or chapter 11 through 14, I forgot exactly, but Uh, We are kind of recapping chronologically. We've already entered into the second half of the tribulation period. But chapter 12 takes us back to the midpoint. In fact, chapters 12 and 13, we are introduced to kind of a satanic trinity of the dragon, the false Christ, and the false prophet. Uh, They take center stage in chapters 12 and 13. And uh, we see that in this this parenthetical section we're in, we're kind of recapping everything we've, or some of the things we've already studied, kind of zeroing in, amplifying some things to get greater uh, insight into what has already happened. The chronology is going to pick up again in chapter 16, where we're going to begin to see now the bowls being poured out, and that's going to lead to the return of Christ, etc. So, you know, we're, we're going to be moving ahead, but right now we're kind of like stopping taking a look at what's going on, kind of seeing some things we haven't seen before. And so with that in mind, chapter 12, verse 1 says, 
Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. First of all, it says, now a great sign appeared in heaven. This is going to be the first of seven signs that appear in chapters 12 and 13. We see a woman clothed with the sun in verses 1 and 2. The red dragon with seven heads and ten horns in verses 3 and 4. The male child in verses 5 and 6. We see Michael the archangel casting Satan out of heaven in verses 7 through 12. The offspring of the woman persecuted by the dragon in verses 13 through 17. And then we see in chapter 13 the beast that comes out of the sea, which is indicative of the world leader or what we call the Antichrist. We see that in verses 2 through 10. And then we see in verses 11 through 18 in chapter 13, the beast that comes out of the earth. This is a reference to the false prophet. So these are seven signs that the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to that are pivotal to what is going on in this story, this drama that's unfolding that we call the tribulation period. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for you.